Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. Uh, this is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, before we get into our, our interview, I wanted to uh, sort of encourage you to tell you how we support this thing, how we pay for our studio time and all that stuff. You can, if you're here in Montreal, you can uh, uh, contribute by going to some of our sponsors. We are sponsored by two Montreal businesses, by Elsa's, which is a wonderful bar restaurant in Pathemoyal on Roy and Dubillon. Wonderful place. Uh, this particular episode is brought to you by Elsa's. Um, it's also brought to you by Good Mix. Good Mix is a kind of seedy, uh, kind of paleo, wonderful stuff. Um, it's made in Vermont, and it is something you have it in the morning with breakfast. You have it with yogurt. Uh, people, some people have it with milk. Something it's all various ways, but it's very, very good for you. It's very virtuous. Um, it fills you for hours and hours and hours. I have this stuff in the morning. And I have it at around six six o'clock in the morning, and it fills me all the way until the afternoon. Like I'm not hungry until then. It's wonderful stuff. It's really good for your digestion. It's uh, I, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but apparently it has something to do with it promotes really healthy gut bacteria, which is good for all sorts of things that we don't entirely understand, but know are important. And we were also sponsored by The Wiggle Room, which is a burlesque club on Saint-Laurent, just across the street uh, from Schwartz's. It's uh, wonderful. Also in Plateau Montréal, it's an old-school Montreal burlesque club. It's as if you're getting in a time machine and going back to the 20s or the 40s, uh, Montreal, and it's sort of bad boy youth and everything. It's all red velvet and yeah, it's a fantastic place. So uh, without further ado, I give you the episode. Today we are going to be talking to my dear friend, Patrick Lee Miller, a philosopher, uh, all around interesting individual who I've had the great, great benefit of meeting and hanging out with uh, most recently at the Quillette Social in Toronto. Just a, a wonderful, fascinating guy. Um, he and I both were very fascinated by Francis Fukuyama's new book, Identity. And we both thought that Fukuyama has a very interesting way of understanding identity politics in the modern world. He has a a, a view of identity politics that makes sense of a great deal of things. You know, identity politics on the right, on the left, religious, non-religious. Uh, very, it's, a, it's an interesting view. But there's some very important problems with his take on identity politics. And I think uh, Patrick does a very good job of identifying why those are there and what's going on. So... It's, uh, it's a wonderful episode, one of my most enjoyable ones recording. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. 
Um, today we're going to be talking with Patrick Lee Miller. Patrick is this is his second time on the podcast, and I've been very much looking forward to this conversation for a while. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here again. Yeah. So I, there's so many things to talk about. I mean, I guess the the springboard for all of this is Francis Fukuyama's book Identity, which we both read feverishly. <laughs> We're very interested. And you wrote a fantastic, uh, very long, in-depth essay. I, I don't want to even call it a review of his book because it it's more of a freestanding essay. I mean, it's a long, interesting reflection on the book, which uses the book as a starting point for a lot of interesting conversations, but uh, perhaps you could just sort of lay out for our listeners what the what Francis Fukuyama's book is about and what you think of it. Okay, well, I like the book, so we can get that out of the way quickly. And my review is largely positive. The I guess the central claim of the book is that the animating idea of politics nowadays, not just in the United States or Canada, but around the world is identity. And he understands that concept to have emerged uh, through European history. The main figures he singles out are Luther, Rousseau, Kant, and Hegel. And from that um, intellectual history emerges the idea that we have this hidden self that's different from social convention, and that when our hidden self is not recognized by our society, we grow indignant, we grow resentful. And so he wants to explain a lot of contemporary movements as expressions of the uh, resentment that comes from not having that identity recognized or before that resentment arises simply for the effort to have that identity recognized. Okay. Yeah, and and I think one thing he does very well, which has reminded me of uh, Charles Taylor, actually, right, the the making of the modern self. What was that? The you remember that that book? It's, I I mean, it's been a while Sources since I've read it. Sources, Sources of, of the, the self, self, right? Making of the modern identity, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and he talks about there how this whole idea of an inner life, like an inner person, is itself yes. a social construct and a, a product of history and culture. So, you know, there have been. Plenty of people in the past and probably people somewhere in the world even today that don't actually think of an inner self, right? They don't have this inner self that needs to be explored. In fact, if you if you believe uh, Yuval Noah Harari in his, um, his last book, well, actually his second to last book, Homo Deus, and he works it out even more in his, uh, his new one, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, where he says that uh, in the same way that the modern self that is this this true self that needs to be expressed was a historical product, he says that there's new religions amongst us and on the horizon which have a completely different concept, uh, way of thinking about the self. So he, he talks about dataism, which is absolutely mind-blowing, where he says that there's a a new religion emerging among young people right now on Instagram and social media and things like that, where you exist completely insofar as you share information 
about yourself. So whereas, you know, yes. Descartes might have said, I think, therefore I am. The dataist says, I post, therefore I am. I share, therefore mm -hmm. I am. So if, mm -hmm. you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it just to make a sound, it's sort of like, if we have a party and nobody takes pictures and posts them, did it happen, right? If we have right. like, and so this idea, and there's ways to make fun of that, um, which are easy and, you know, largely valid. But what I think is interesting is that Harari takes it very seriously and he says, well, actually, what's going on here? I mean, there's actually something very fascinating going on here, and that's that uh, people are embracing a completely different way of conceptualizing your your existence, right? Then, Rather than you are constantly under the eye of God or under the eye of your true self, you know, to thine own self be true. Now it's like you are constantly under the eye of your, I don't know, Instagram husband who's taking all the pictures. I don't know, but like it's, uh, so yeah. So he says that largely identity is, our identity politics are fueled by an essentially Protestant Western conception of identity, right? I mean, that's... This is, this is Fukuyama. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I just have a couple of things to say about the Harari. Now, I haven't read that book, so I'm just responding to what you've said right there. But it's certainly true. I, I expect many have had this experience where you've shared something on Facebook. You might have even had an interaction with somebody, particular even messages. But then when you see them in person, it's like you have to tell all the stories over again as if they didn't really get co conveyed properly <laughs> when you interacted, as if you're two selves. So there's something to that, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to endorse exactly Harari's version of it because I'm not precisely sure what it is, but there's something to that. Yeah. Well, and it also depends on the person I've found, right? I mean, there's some people like, like you, for instance. I mean, we interacted in virtual reality land, like through messages and, and things like that. But when I actually met you in person, there was zero surprise. You're exactly the way I thought you would be. <laughs> so, oh, well, uh, but there are some people that have, uh, it's quite shocking. It can, the difference between their, the persona mm -hmm. that they kind of put on in, um, in social media land is very strikingly different from who they're like in real life. And that can be, that can be good and bad. That can be, usually it's just neutral. It's just different, right? It's just a different yes. kind of, so yeah, no, that, that's a lot well, of we were familiar. We were familiar with that phenomenon before social media. Surely you had the experience uh, in graduate school, for example, of reading the papers by some famous philosopher and being very eager to meet that person. And then when they finally come to your program and they give a paper and you then you go out for coffee with them afterwards, they're so different from the papers that they're giving. We create these virtual identities in text, whether they're electronic texts or old-fashioned print texts, and they can be quite different from who we are. Nietzsche, for example, as you know, Nietzsche writes an autobiography, so-called Ecce Homo, but he's deliberately creating a persona in Ecce Homo that he, you know, that he's, that is not himself. He says all kinds of patently absurd things about <laughs> his descent, his descent from Polish noblemen and so on, and that have no correspondence with reality. And I don't think he thinks the reader will ever believe any of those things. Yeah. And he's trying to disrupt your expectation that this is an autobiography that's going to tell the truth about who he really is yeah. to some extent, because there is no truth about who he really is. If you take his view of selfhood seriously, <laughs> well, I I also think in that book what he's what he's playing with, and it's sad that people largely don't pick up on this, but like he's playing up on the 
the genre of the self disclosing confessional from from Augustine to present, where you sort of present this facade of like false humi- humility and like you have and so he's just turning that upside down and he, I mean Ekehomo reads those chapter it reads yeah, like those... it reads like a <laughs> it reads like hip hop it's like you know right. I'm so bad I'm so amazing you know like your mama loved me like it's just it's it's absolutely hilarious right it's uh, yes yeah, it's as like, long as you it's like you know Otherwise, you think he's a narcissist if you're not in on the joke, because the chapter titles you'll remember. Yeah, why, why I am so wise. Why I am so noble. Why I am a destiny. Why I am a destiny. Exactly. <laughs> why I write such good books. <laughs> yes, that's that's it. Right. Yeah, no, it's pretty hilarious. So, well, what is Augustine. your what is your critique of uh, uh, Fukuyama? But oh no, you said Augustine. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Augustine. Uh, there is the first uh, confessions, at least in, in in our literary tradition. And I agreed with what you hinted at earlier, that Fukuyama is giving us a distilled version in just a few chapters of a short book of what Charles Taylor gave us in a magnificent six to 700-page book uh, in the 1980s. And in that book of Charles Taylor, he pinpoints Augustine as the beginning of this idea of the inner self. Yeah. So... I think you know a, a small criticism I make, just in passing, not in the Quillette version of the review, but in the longer one, that uh, Fukuyama starts with Luther, uh, whereas Taylor started with Augustine. And since Fukuyama is basing his account largely on August, uh, on Taylor, it's a mystery why he didn't go all the way back. But you ask about my criticism, and my criticism is of both of those authors, but in this case, Fukuyama, that uh, it begins with Plato. Okay. Yeah, and that's just as a footnote here. I to the listeners, uh, funny sort of coincidence. You know, small world. Patrick and I discovered after we did the first like Phil um, interview a little while afterwards that we actually had a bunch of mutual friends and that we were at the same wedding, uh, Leah and Will's wedding, like long ago. <laughs> and long just, ago, yeah, just totally wild. But I also remembered after that that. At a certain point, Will and I were totally obsessed with John Rawlinson Saul. And he said, uh, Oh, I've got this like super philosophical friend. He's in grad school right now. And like, I, and he was so kind of proud, you know, it's like a cat bringing home a dead bird, you know? He's like, I'm going to like, I'm going to show <laughs> my friend. That's how I felt in graduate school. I'm like going to show bird. my friend Patrick and uh, this amazing, you know, new bird that I caught, right? And so he sent you, I think it was Voltaire's Bastards or The Unconscious Civilization. Yeah. And yeah, he, he said, with you and he was like i'm so psyched you know to hear what my my friend patrick says about and everything and then he got like this long i mean you were like an intense dude in your 20s anyway you got this like long long like you know pauline epistle as a response (laughs) and it was like you know you clearly had read it very carefully and thought about it and all this stuff and uh, you, you mostly were not impressed, but you, I remember one thing, he read me a passage from it, from your, you know, Pauline epistle. I think it was chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. <laughs> anyway, and you said that one of the things you did like about John Olson Saul was his critique of the confessional mode. And mm. that uh, sort of based on, he had, he had, of course, read Charles Taylor and, and loved it. And he said that... Uh, that this confessional mode was really a sneaky way of getting around ethics. And it's sort of like you, you tell the reader what your state of mind was and you give them all the extenuating uh, circumstances, which are supposed to like, 
you know, make it okay that you behaved horribly. And he he draws a straight line from uh, St. Augustine's confessions to all of these uh, memoirs that come um, come out after, you know, the Vietnam War fiasco and then Nixon and Watergate, where these people involved in those events say, oh, you know, I'm so sorry, but look at, you know, like, there's all this stuff going on in my life. And like, this mm. is, you know, and I really meant well. <laughs> like that. Yeah. But uh, John McNamara was the, the no, Robert McNamara, not the tennis player, Ma- but yeah, John the Secretary Robert of McNamara is, of course, his quintessential case, but he has many. Yes. Uh, where you yes. sort of, you write this long, long mea culpa, which is really kind of a, uh, you know, uh, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> like, like yeah. I, I, I meant well, we were the, you know, we meant, we, we were trying to do the right thing and all this stuff, but. But anyway, so uh, so Fukuyama, you have a very fascinating um, sort of take on him. He he says that we need to go back to Plato, we need to go back to Thumos to understand what identity politics is all about. You you agree with him, but you think he's basically wrong about Plato and Thumos. That's right. So maybe just as an intermediate step before we get there, he's Fukuyama's a Hegelian, and I've only really come to terms with this very recently that. He, um, if he didn't study with Kojev, no, he didn't study with Kojev, but he studied with the Bloom, who had studied with Kojev. At any rate, this great interpreter of Hegel from the uh, early to mid 20th century um, focuses on the master slave dialectic in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, where the central drama is how do we get recognition from other people? And Using, I mean, we, we don't need to get into the master-slave dialectic unless you want to, but that's that becomes, for Hegel, at least in Kojev's interpretation, and this is Fuku, Fukuyama's central idea, the, the engine of history is then the desire for recognition. And it's not then, as Marx later interprets history, you know, the, the conflict between classes over material resources, but rather the Hegelian idea that comes before Marx, that what history is is about is people seeking the recognition of other people, classes, nations, and so on, seeking the recognition of other people. And Plato comes in, in this particular book, in the first substantial chapter, because whereas Plato entered into the end of history, Fukuyama's 1992 book, which was much more explicitly Hegelian, in this book, Plato's right at the beginning because Fukuyama really sees the need to give a psychology that puts the desire for recognition at the forefront and he thinks he's got that psychology in Plato, because Plato has a soul that has three parts, a mm-hmm. money-loving part, an honor-loving part in, in the middle, and a wisdom-loving part uh, at the top. And Fukuyama wants to highlight the honor-loving part, that, that what he calls the third part of the soul, the middle part of the soul, and, and that, that motivates everybody to get the recognition of other people. And so it's this way of sort of grounding... In, an, in a universal, absolute, true psychology, which he presents Plato's to be without giving any arguments for why it's true, that we all desire recognition. And then he adds this Hegelian story that history develops as the uh, conflicts between various people looking for recognition. And he's got those details about the Reformation and, and the Enlightenment and so on with, with Luther and Rousseau and, and Kant, where a particular notion of identity gets developed, but it's all this story of how we're trying to satisfy this 
third part of our soul, this middle part of our soul in Plato, this, this part of our soul that wants honor or esteem or respect or dignity, however you, um, however you translate it, and we get resentful when it's not satisfied, and that's where the, the, the main clashes of politics arise. Yeah, I mean, the, there's two things I would initially say about that. And first one is that uh, in Plato, this is very much presented as, yes, every every human being has the three different parts of the soul. They have the you know, logisticon, the thumisticon, the epithumisticon. They have the three parts. They have sort of reason, passion, um, and appetite. However, uh, in in Plato, you get the idea that people who are ruled by thumos are a minority. They're they're always mm-hmm. a small minority. It's not everybody. Like so, That's right. so one sort of sleight of hand that he makes, which and, mm. and there's ways he could have explained that. I mean, definitely yeah. Anthony Appia in his book the the Honor Code he explains very clearly that. You know what is happening now in the modern world is a kind of democratization of thumos, a democratization of the honorable soul, right? That everybody yes. is now. But uh, for some reason, uh, Fugiyama doesn't even mention the fact that for Plato, this would have been a certain kind of person that's obsessed with respect and honor. Not everybody, yes. right? So, yeah, that's an that's an excellent point, and. I hadn't thought about this before, but I've given an assignment in my introduction to philosophy class for a long time. Uh, After they've read, well, while they're reading Plato's Republic, they do the following assignment. First, as they're just beginning, I have them write five pages telling me who they are. And I'm clear that when I say who you are, I want to know what it is that you really want out of life. You know, tell me what you really believe to be true, but especially tell me what you really want. And that's setting them up for a platonic analysis, because Plato's eventually going to say there are three types of people, those who are, uh, really want money, those who really want honor, and those who really want uh, wisdom. And I was surprised, having read hundreds of those over the years, that most of the stories my students tell about themselves, and then the analyses that they often accurately give of themselves, are not uh, money-loving. But ra- very few are wisdom-loving, but the majority are honor-loving. Now, now, they don't put it as honor unless they've been forced into that mold by the platonic vocabulary. But they want the love of their family. They want the respect of their friends. They, uh, you know, they want self-esteem, which we get largely through our interactions with other people whom we esteem, as Fukuyama rightly says, thanks to the Hegelian master-slave dialectic. But at any rate, I think, I think that uh, Appiah's right in what you reported there, that most people want honor, um, maybe not as such, not described as honor. They want respect or love or dignity. And I'm not familiar with that idea of it having been democratized, but that would that would be a transition between Plato's notion of honor, where it's the reserve of special warriors to everybody. Yeah, well, I think you're you're stacking the deck, you know, and that that's part of the reason why you're getting. I mean, I, you know, I I did exactly the same thing for years in my classes when I was teaching on this. But I think if you find creative ways to translate what he means by a philo philokinides and a, a philo somebody a philonikos, somebody who loves a lover of victory, a lover of comfort and gain, a lover of wisdom. If you yeah. find creative ways to translate that into the English language, you'll get more of an interesting spread, right? So you'll get like, you'll get, if instead of wisdom, you say like, are you mainly driven by kind of a a desire to 
to create beautiful things or to pursue kind of scientific questions or by, you know, whatever, like then you'll get a bunch more people sort of coming out on what we would maybe think of as being like a lover of wisdom. Right. And then if you say, uh, you know, do you, do you basically want to just have a, have a job that allows you to, you know, you're making like a decent living, but it allows you to have like a good work-life balance where you can like have a healthy relationship and you can actually see your kids and maybe stay home with them when they're young. And do you want to live in like a nice neighborhood where you don't need to be in a big house, but you just, you want to be comfortable. You just want to be right. Like, and if you ask them questions like that, you'll suddenly get a lot more people coming out in favor rather than saying, do you want fucking money? You know, like, (laughs) like, are you a lover? Everybody, somebody's Right. People are primed right. to like hate that shit. They're not going to come out right. and say like, "Yes, I just want money. I want my life to be like <laughs> a fucking rap video." Like, no, they, you know, like, "I'll make it rain. I'll make it rain." But they—they're not going to say that. So instead, if you if you say, "Do you do you want to be comfortable? Do you want to have a nice like?" If you frame it in kind of like Epicurean terms, you know, you'll yes. get a bunch more people. Uh, and then if you frame the the honor one more as like, are are you willing to make really big sacrifices to uh, find true love? Are you willing to even like um, have affairs or break up relationships or move far? Or uh, would you for love, um, you know, go with somebody that it would require moving to a completely new country and cutting off your whole family? And, or are you really uh, goal oriented in your career so much so that you would give up, um, you know, like, have you seen that wonderful new sh- uh, show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? No, I have not. Oh, no. it's so good. It's so good. Anyway, it's it's set in the 1950s, and it's this woman who's uh, a mother of two, married mother of two, and she she decides for a number of reasons she wants to be a stand-up comedian, and she's uh, she's friends with Lenny Bruce and, like, all this stuff. It, but mm. you see by the end of the second season that it's such a mature and interesting and brilliant show. She has decided that she's really ambitious and she wants to make a go of this. But rather than like having these stupid ideas we have today where you can like have it all, she completely acknowledges what that means. Like Mm -hmm. she acknowledges that that means that she's not going to be a good mother, that she's probably Mm -hmm. never going to be in a fulfilling relationship, that she's going to have uh, lots of conflict with her family, that it's going to mess up a lot of her friendships. She misses her friend's um, uh, baby shower that she was supposed to organize. She... It's just such a brilliant show because like you're rooting for her like crazy, but at the same time, you can see she's kind of a dick. And she's like really letting a lot of people down and she's mm-hmm. hurting people and she's, but she doesn't care because she's motivated yeah. by honor and respect. She wants to do, you know what I mean? Like if, if, you, if you lay it out like that, you can get an, a much more honest uh, right. spread from the, the students in terms of what they actually want. Right. Yeah. And I think that uh, Mrs. Maisel example puts it very well because the way you find out what your dominant part is in the platonic analysis because plato thinks we all have all three parts it's not like somebody's born that's uh, right except you know well there are there plato does have a theory of natural slavery so perhaps some people are born without the rational part but at any rate we all 
uh, typically have all three parts. And then it's a question of the proportions. And the way that you find out your particular proportions is you ask, what would you be willing to give up for that thing? So if it were a contest between money and honor, if you could be rich but have no friends, or you could be uh, adored and respected by everybody but be poor, which would you choose? That will tell you which is more important to you, the honor-loving part or the money-loving part. And, and finally, if you could know the truth or you know have a life devoted to understanding the most important things, but you would not only be poor, but people would scorn you because you'd be breaking social conventions in order to pursue what's really true. Would you choose that? And that, and that's what I find very few students actually want is the, the <laughs> life of the life of wisdom. And yeah. I doubt very many philosophy professors want it either. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, the people I've met who, who really fit the model of the, the philosophos are, uh, well, I, I've met them in a number of different, like, the, but one of them is, you know, why I've, I'm, I'm kind of one of my various fields that I'm interested in is, is herpetology. And like, I've met people who are kind of professional or amateur herpetologists, which is, you know, this, you know, this branch of biology that deals with reptiles and amphibians. But I've, I've found people in a number of weird branches of science where, they're just yeah. so obsessed with figuring out yes. how it's working that yes. it's it's almost like this fire that burns away everything else. Like they will forget about their family, their friends. They'll forget about their health. They, yes. they, they even kind of forget to a large extent about their own ego. Like they don't mind mm -hmm. if their theory, yeah. uh, like this one guy, McGill, I, I mean, he's just a, an amazing, amazing scientist. Uh, I'll, I'll say his name. He, I think he's amazing, David Green. But like, he's uh, he's a world-renowned um, biologist and herpetologist at McGill, and like watching his mind work, like he could be pushing for a particular theory and explanation for how things happen. I'm not even going to go into the minutia; it doesn't matter. But um, and be traveling and working on this problem like crazy for seven years and then find out that his theory wasn't true and mm -hmm. uh, somebody else's theory, which as it turns out with the, you know, new fossil evidence and stuff like that is, is true. And he literally doesn't care. Like yeah. he's overjoyed yeah. like a little six year old boy that, Oh my God, this is so exciting. We're figuring this shit out. Like, yeah. That's a philosophos, right? So, yeah, and right, you can right. see that with people in, in many other areas. It's not just in science, but it's people who are just really interested in understanding the truth about things. Well, let me let me give two other examples. One is the example I use at the very end of the long version of the review that's on Arc Digital, not on Quillette, but on Arc Digital, and that's W. H. Auden. A good one, and. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're probably going to go there, Patrick. We're going to go there. So, right. <laughs> about um, bad editing, but anyway, yes, John, I'm so, talking to you. So, okay. <laughs> uh, I use him because well, I use Arendt's Hannah Arendt's obituary for him that appeared when Auden died in the '70s. That I was fortunate; a friend of mine just happened to share around the time I was writing this, and it, it fit perfectly for the point I was trying to make. Arendt says of Auden that he was totally indifferent to the esteem and honor that other people gave him. 
for his poetry. And he was also indifferent to money, which is why he died poor, I gather. Mm-hmm. So here's an example of someone who's not a philosopher, certainly not a philosophy professor, but uh, not recognizable as a, as a specialist in philosophy. I have no idea how much of the history of philosophy he knew, for example. But he had that devotion to something, and the piece of poetry I quote at the end uh, makes it seem at any rate that he's devoted to God, or at least an understanding of the divinity of the cosmos. So that's much closer to Plato's notion of the philosopher than anything you'll find in a philosophy department nowadays. The other example I want to mention is something that you and I uh, both like, and that's the um, the podcast Heavyweight, that the episode oh, Marischal. Yes. Oh my and we, we could talk about that all day, I'm sure, but in that movie, Russian Ark, that that episode is about, uh, the, ep- the, ep- the podcast is about, a per- you know, that movie was shot in one continuous uh, scene, which was just an amazing feat of acting and organization and directing and so on. And they made it through the entire uh, scene of 90 minutes without any flaws, except right at the end when there's an orchestra playing at the ball. Who looks at the camera. <laughs> a violinist, when he's finished playing, he looks right at the camera yeah. and spoils the dramatic illusion. Now, I, I saw Russian Ark when it came out, and I didn't even notice that, so I, I don't think it actually in any way spoils the movie, unless perhaps... I, you have I didn't notice more neurotic, either, yeah. even More neurotic even than I, which I guess the director of Heavyweight is. But at any rate, when the director of Heavyweight, you remember his name, is it Goldberg? Jonathan Gold- John- Goldstein. Jonathan, Jonathan Goldstein. Yeah. He contacts that guy, Marichal, Uh, somehow he manages to find this Russian violinist that was in this movie 15 years ago and finally finds out why, you know, why did you look at the camera? And the guy doesn't even remember that he looked at the camera, (laughs) but his wife, his wife knows exactly why he would have looked at the camera. She, she doesn't know that he looked at the camera either, but she says when he's into his music, when he's playing his music, he's, he completely forgets everything. So that when he stops his music, it's like he has to wake up and be in life again. And so, of course, he looked at the camera. He was trying to orient himself. Like, what kind of weird world am I born back into after having been transported by this by this playing of this violin? Yeah. So, so what is? I mean, what do you think Fukuyama gets wrong about Plato? Yes. So he introduces Thymos uh, as the so-called third part of the soul that wants recognition. And things go awry from the very beginning. He's relying on a, a translation that's popular uh, even now, uh, Alan Bloom's translation of the Republic. And when Alan Bloom translates that stretch, uh, the psychological stretch of Book Four of the Republic, Alan Bloom calls. So there are three parts of the soul in, in Plato, as we've said, and you gave the Greek names for them a moment ago. I'll just give them again: the Epithumeticon, the Thumoedon, and the Logisticon. And epithumeticon is the lowest part. Epithumia means appetite. And so the epithumeticon is the appetitive part of the soul. Yet Alan Bloom translates it as the desiring part of the soul. And that causes Huge no mistake. end of problems. Because, Huge mistake. Because all parts of the soul desire, right? That's, exactly. They're, That's they're the defined fundamental. by what they desire. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the thumoedon has a certain desire and the logisticon has a certain desire. And the way you divide the soul is according to these three types of desire. And the way you get the argument to work for the fact that the, the soul has to, in fact, be divided is that people experience conflicting desires. So that's the, that's the basis of the argument. You can't really understand why it's, I think, a sound argument unless you get that right from the beginning. So relying on that 
bad translation. And, you know, there, there's a whole host of misinterpretations that rely not just on Alan Boone's bad translation, but the, the tradition of, of British philosophy, I think. And so that gets into the English translations. So he translates the Epithematicon as the desiring part. And then Bloom does, and Fukuyama goes along with that. And then when he talks about the rational part, he assume, he just calls it the rational part. So when there are conflicts to start the psychology, he calls them conflicts between the desiring part and the rational part, even before he's mentioned the third part. And that way of describing the soul is especially David Hume's way of uh, describing the soul in the 18th century. And that's why this British tradition is very important for influencing these translations. And in Hume's psychology, you've got passions, as he calls them, namely desires for any number of things. And that word passion covers for Hume anything from food, drink, sex, sleep, warmth, and so on, to the recognition of other people. That's also a passion, uh, vainglory, to which he devotes a whole chapter. So with that bad translation, with that misconception, Fukuyama thinks he's giving a platonic theory of the soul, but he's actually giving a Humean theory of the soul, which is the very thing he's trying to resist in that book. He says, economists, for example, have misunderstood the history of politics because they think that uh, Hume is right about psychology, namely humans have these passions and they have a reason that opposes them, but, uh, or, 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 um, cooperates with them to achieve what the passions want, and that if you want to understand what's going on in society, understand what people want, which economists typically think is money, and understand how they calculate to get it, and then you'll get the results uh, of particular size, their, their, their constitutions. And Fukuyama wants to stick in this new thing, recognition, but as I say, Hume already had that. It's just another one of the passions. So there's no need to stick in a third part of the soul. You're just working with the Humean soul to begin with. Yeah, so, and, and a messed up version of it even there. I mean, because like every part, if you want to take every part of the soul, according to Plato, desires, and every part of the soul is also rational, right? I may do some stupid shit because I'm trying to get rich or trying to get laid or trying to get into heaven, but... From the perspective of that part of my soul that's driving at the time, it's entirely rational. I mean, the things that a heroin Uh, junkie does are rational from the perspective of the part of their soul that's trying to get heroin, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's a broken way of thinking about it all the way through, right? So. Yes. So it's a, it's a broken way of thinking about Plato, and you could read my review and listen to this interview as, oh, right, well, there's a Plato scholar just correcting Fukuyama on his misinterpretation of Plato. And I want to do that because I think it's important to get Plato right, but I want to do that especially because I think Plato is right in the actual psychology he gives. And so Fukuyama's analysis is hobbled by the fact that he's not actually working with uh, the best theory. He's working with the very Humean theory that he thinks he's uh, supplanting with something better. Yeah. So the, and, and the, the actual word, platonic theory could do what he wants it to do. Exactly. I mean, that's a way of summarizing my review. So what is it? What is the actual platonic theory? Well, as we said, there are three types of desire: desire, the appetitive desire, which is desire for bodily satisfactions, but ultimately for money, because in any uh, global marketplace, especially, but in any marketplace with enough money, you can buy the satisfaction of your body, whatever its appetites. And the second part of the soul is the honor-loving part. What it wants is recognition. And as I understand that, um, this is to cooperate with social conventions because that's how we get esteem. If 
people in our society think something's good, if we do that thing that they think is good, we will get recognition from them. So it's the middle part of that soul, attending to goodness, but not actual goodness, but rather goodness as it appears to people in our society or subculture or whatever group it is from which we're seeking recognition. And then finally, the rational part of the soul is also a desire, but it's a desire for the real good. And the problem with Fukuyama's book is that that desire, the desire for the real good, which is actually Plato's third part of the soul, namely reason, just doesn't appear in Fukuyama's analysis. And it creates all kinds of problems that that we can get into. So what are the what are the problems? I mean, in terms of him trying to sort of because his project is to some extent he wants to get he wants to find a frame outside of identity politics uh, from which to not only critique identity politics and the politics of identity, but also to provide, especially in the fourteenth chapter an alternative to it, right? The last chapter where he says, like, you know, where do we go from here? How do we proceed, right? And he has his his response, right? That's right. So he thinks identity politics has supplanted economic politics to some extent, or at least they coexist. And even if he doesn't want to get beyond them, he wants to remedy some of the problems that, that they create, and certainly the problems that identity politics creates. And so he's got a number of suggestions. And uh, one that I pick up on, because I I think it illustrates the problem with his analysis, is he thinks that we should have a compulsory civilian service, rather on the order of the draft. So, But instead of being drafted for the military, we get drafted for this civilian corps. Well, it's sort of like Israel, what he describes, that we could have, everybody has to do their military service, and it it doesn't necessarily mean you got to pick up a gun, but you have to do some stuff for the state, right? In in some capacity, right? Right. And he's clearly shying away from a military draft because after all, if you're trying to argue that the way to unite the polarized uh, politics of the United States is by reinstituting the military draft, you've got the really severe problem of remembering the fact that things got really polarized in the late 1960s because of the draft for Vietnam. So he tries to bypass that problem by having a civilian service. But my critique is that, well, that civilian service is going to do things, and they're probably going to be ordered by, say, the president or Congress. And so if those institutions are polarized, then the civilian service is going to be co-opted by various identity groups and used for their purposes. So, for example, if Trump's in charge of the civilian corps that Fukuyama imagines, what if he sends it down to start building the wall? Well, clearly that's going to be upsetting to people with left identity politics. But what if the civilian corps gets used by uh, a president or a Congress on the left. And similarly, the right is going to be upset. So, I mean, I'm not saying I don't have a critique of every single one of his uh, recommendations. It wasn't my purpose in the review, but I took the one that I thought, you know, was the most uh, vivid uh, to make the general point that you're not going to solve the problem of identity politics by these practical measures Because the practical measures are going to end up reproducing the problem of identity politics unless there's a horizon of agreement among the citizens in light of which we're doing things. So in Plato, for example, yes, you have rivals for honor, 
but in, in his perfect city, for example. But if they have a common notion of what's best, namely the real good, then one can cede honor to the other, or both can deny that they deserve the honor, or both can divide the honor according to their conception of what's best. And of course, that might be a philosopher's dream, but if you take, <laughs> if you take that out, as Fukuyama does implicitly from his misappropriation of Plato, if you take that out, there's no solution to the problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things he, he alludes to, I mean, he talks about it, he alludes to it in that last chapter is he says that we get, we need to get more comfortable with the idea of having like civics classes and making sure that everybody speaks the same language and, and has the same kind of values. And that's, uh, broadly speaking, and yes. I don't. I don't think that's all bad at all. I mean, I I look at uh, my my wife is her family's from Finland, and Finland had one of the worst public. They had one of the worst education systems in all of the EU. It was uh, it was a joke, and they had a lot of problems and things like that. And they decided to turn their education system around. And mm-hmm. now they have the top education system on planet Earth. They outperform uh, even the you know South Korea, Japan, Singapore, all these countries. And what's fascinating is they outperform them by playing a completely different game. Like rather than having kids go to pre-kindergarten, kids don't start school till they're seven. Uh, mm. They have a shorter school day than any of the other really high-performing countries. They have uh, long summer vacations. They, you know, all the, they they just do everything a completely different way. But one of the first things Finland did when they were reforming their system was they basically closed down all the private schools. They just mm. they closed them down because they said like uh, this is a major problem. Is like if you have um, if if rich people people of means can sort of take their kids out of the regular system and put them into then the public system just starts to sort of spiral down to the bottom, right? Like if mm. we're going to create the next generation in a kind of a platonic sense, right? We like through education, then we need everybody like new immigrants, people from different class groups, people from different religious groups. We need them all to like uh, hang out with each other for a while, right? They don't have to, you know, we're not forcing them to marry each other or like live together, but they need to all know each other and be kind of in the same boat in the, in the way that World War II was a war that, um, that kind of everybody fought as opposed to Vietnam being the working class yes. war or something like that. So, and this was a, a real kind of, you know, band of brothers, like a unifying experience. And that one thing when you talk to people who work for the Finnish education department, they say that, you know, there are many changes they made, but they said, you know, that by itself was mm-hmm. probably, uh, when when he was here in Montreal, like I'm blanking on his name, but, and he gave a talk, somebody asked during the question period, what do you think of all the reforms you made? What was the most important one? And he said, oh, that's hard, and he kind of thought for a little bit, and Finnish people, when they think for a bit, they really think for a bit. Uh, They're comfortable with pauses and silences. And he finally said, uh, you know, I think probably it was uh, closing down the the private schools. He said Mm -hmm. because um, he he cited 
uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, he said, well, it's really important that everybody have skin in the game, right? And so if everybody has to, if, if it's your kids that have to fight in the war, you're going to be a mm-hmm. little more careful about voting yes for the war for a, yeah. an invasion. If it's your kids that have to go to that school, you're going to make sure the teachers are paid well and they know what they're talking about and the ceiling isn't falling in and like they have yeah. up-to-date computers and like you're going to if it, if you have to use the same hospitals as everybody else, you're going to make sure that they're right. And so if you extract all the people who are uh, have the most connections, the most money, the most ambitious, the most whiny, complainy patients, customers, parents. Uh, if you take them out of the regular public system and put them into another system, then uh, the public system tends to sort of degrade, right? So he, he does talk about the importance of having a some sort of common experience Right for for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm actually very. I mean, I've lost friends over this, but I'm actually quite partial to that. I, I think that mm-hmm. would be. I mean, I encourage both of my my sons to do um, to do military to go in like reserves or cadets. One of them is. One of them is not. Uh, but I definitely, you know, and I'm not my. My wife is the same way in this, right? She's a she's one of those old school like New England uh, Democrats that are super patriotic. Like they're mm-hmm. they're yes. Democrats and they're liberals, uh, but they're crazy, crazy patriotic. And if you yes. say anything nasty about the flag, or they'll get incredibly angry at you. And don't you dare mm-hmm. burn the flag in front of them. Like uh, mm-hmm. they, and so she also was, you know, was is not uncomfortable around patriotism at all. But but I, I think it's good to instill in your kids that, like, you're a member of a community and that community um, is worth defending and it's worth yes. caring about. And if somebody attacks it, you should be ready to, like, fight for it, you know. And I I don't know why we've, we've suddenly become so uncomfortable with that. Yeah, well, so much to say in there. I mean, the first <laughs> thing I'll... Uh, address is that I think in the end it does come down to education. Uh, you know, I've written a series of essays for Quillette now, um, all of which, m- almost all of which, end for a call for something like platonic education, where I understand by that uh, an education that is attentive first and foremost to character before becom- becoming concerned with intellect. And it's hard to go from the, those intellectual points to what will I do about the American educational system, for example, and I'm, I, I'm not drawing a line uh, like that. But I think Plato's right that without proper character formation, for example, in courage, that intellectual training can be dangerous. So if you get trained in philosophy, he's quite aware of this problem. He addresses it in Book 7 of the Republic. Yeah. If you get trained in philosophy uh, without first becoming courageous, yeah or at least be, being trained in courage, uh, you're going to conform and you're going to use reason uh, for rationalizations to promote yourself and, and your group. Yeah. And to, to depart from a group takes great courage. You know, Socrates is Plato's example of somebody whose pursuit of truth and knowledge and wisdom was 
anchored in uh, a virtue of character, namely courage, so that even when the state was wrong, he was willing to be executed for what he thought to be the the truth. And I just think that's right. Now, I, again, I don't know how to design a school so that you make kids courageous, but you know, if we're talking about our families. I have my kids in martial arts for that reason, yeah. uh, among others. And I myself uh, am, am in martial arts. I don't want to say for that reason. I'm, you know, I'm much older than they are, so I'm not looking for that kind of basic training in in character that I want to give my children. But I consider it an ongoing practice of physical discipline that, for me, underwrites everything that I do intellectually. Yeah. Well, you ever there was that uh, wonderful book? I'm blanking on the dude's name, but it was called uh, Shop Class as Soulcraft. Yes, I remember. I didn't read it, yeah, but I remember it was, that. There was a guy who basically uh, went and did a PhD in philosophy, um, and then he went and got a job, tenure-track position, and started working as a philosophy prof. He went through, actually got got tenure, and then like like something like a month after getting tenure, he resigned, and he became a mm-hmm. motorcycle. He became a motorcycle mechanic. Right, and he wrote this this absolutely fascinating book, uh, Shop Classes. He he's written a, a couple of others since then, but it's um, he he talks a lot about uh, about Plato and about the formation of the soul, and he says how it's really important. And he says you can get this in different ways. He mentions martial arts, so I'm I'm really glad you've got your kids in that. Uh, but he he mentions a number of different ways that you can train that part of the soul. But he says they all come down to the same thing, which is you have to have a visceral experience of your own incompetence. You, you, have, to come, <laughs> you have to come face-to-face with your own limits in a way that can't yeah. be explained away. Right? Like, if you... And it's yeah. funny, because, you know, Sam Harris yeah. got into, like, Brazilian jiu-jitsu a few years ago. And he said, you know, it's amazing. I got all the way into my 40s and I never had had a, a real and and total experience of failure and incompetence until doing Brazilian mm-hmm. jiu-jitsu. It's like I mm. because failure in professional environments and white collar environments, it very often is subject to spin. Right. You can somehow yes, kind of explain right. away your failures and a lot of yes. your a lot of your sort of advancement is basically a kind of a popularity contest, whether you, how well you can yes. like kind of convince the people around you that you know what you're talking about. Whereas he said, you know, in the trades, you either know it or you don't. Like you go to fix something yes. and if you don't fix it correctly, it doesn't work. And you can't explain that <laughs> right. away. It's not working. And right. so and he talks about, right. Sam Harrison, his podcast, he talked about, you know, going in a sparring with like this little like 68-year-old man who's like a, a tiny little guy who could just kick the living shit out of him. Could like just like pin him down. And there was just no way for him to explain that away. Like, oh, he was lucky right. that time. Yeah, he just did it right. the last right. eight times. And I can't right. I can't breathe, right. you know? So right. uh, just recognizing that there are, there are things to know about the world and there are people that know more than you and they know things right. you don't know. And you are, to experience 
a failure that can't be explained away, he said, is so character building. It's mm-hmm. so, it, it gives you, rather than a, an affected humility, it gives you like true humility, mm. which is the, David, rec- yeah. yeah. David who? Well, uh, David Lynch, uh, the director, um, he, he failed in his own estimation with the film Dune, which I've never seen. I, I've seen almost, if not all the other David Lynch films, almost all the other ones, um, because I, I wrote on him once. And I haven't seen that, that one either, that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're huge fans of that book. And I guess he let them all down by his making of that particular movie. And he thought it was just a bad movie. And, you know, he had, he has excuses for why it was bad, but he, he doesn't put them forward as excuses. He said it, it just was a bad movie. But he, what, what's interesting is he says that, that failure freed me to do my best work in the years after that. And there was something about having experienced that and humiliation in the eyes, I guess, of the, the rest of the, the movie world. He could then do whatever he wanted because he'd already <laughs> lost their esteem. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, can, it can be very freeing. But I, I think one thing, you know, it's another thing that's missing from Fukuyama is – because you, you get this sense very much in somebody like uh, Anthony Appia, is the idea that a lot of activists of, of every kind, right? They could be libertarian activists, you know, whatever, left-wing, right-wing, anything. Um, but activists very often are thumotic people who are mm-hmm. ruled by, they're incredibly touchy, and they're ruled by a, a hypersensitivity to honor and shame. And yes. a lot of what activists do is they go around trying to make everybody else in their group as pissed off as they are, mm-hmm. right? So they go around and like, you know, there's a war against Christmas or, oh, my God, can you believe how right. upsetting this Gillette ad was? You know, And the thing right. is, is like most people look at like the Gillette ad or they look at the – uh, you know, like blurred lines video, and they mostly just think, whatever. I, I don't care, right? Like, but the in, in many ways, kind of the job of the the activists, whatever they are, is to try and make everybody else really mad about that thing yeah. that they're mad about. And you look at ISIS videos, well, right? And they're they're all like the they're trying to get Muslims the world over to get really angry about all the ways in which we're being disrespected, right? And Fox News and, you know, Jezebel and all, all these, they're trying to get people angry about stuff that they are angry about. You know what I mean? Well, I think anger is, I, I think anger is very common uh, in the activist communities you're describing, but I think other emotions are also important, maybe sometimes more important. So fear is, is uh, very important sometimes, but, a shame as well. And we could put anger and shame together in this discussion about Fukuyama because both of those are sensitive to recognition. So if I do something that will damage my esteem in the community, the emotion that I feel is shame if I know that other people know about what I did. Or if I do something and I think I deserve a certain amount of recognition for having done that and people don't give me that recognition, then anger is the emotion. So both anger and shame are, I don't want to say two sides of the same coin, but they're related to the same concept, which is recognition, which Fukuyama, I think, rightly ties to this third part of the soul. But the reason I wanted to pivot to shame is because I had an experience uh, like this um, a couple of years ago, I think it was, it was, you know, during the season of the Trump election mm-hmm. and maybe it was shortly afterwards. I can't remember, but you know, a lot of people and Fukuyama starts his book by saying this and I'm one of them too. Like what just happened? How in the world did this guy get elected? 
And one of the experiences that helped me understand it was I made a Facebook post about um, a discussion I'd had with somebody about, uh, uh, and here I'm going to, I'm going to I'm going to show the influence that this person had on me. We had a discussion about a transgendered person. Mm-hmm. And the thing is I I can't remember whether I said in my original Facebook post a transgender person or a transgendered person. I think it was even worse I said a transgender. And this person uh, attacked might be too strong but scolded me on uh you know the public wall on Facebook for the word that I used. And I, I I'd never heard that you know those particular words d- distinguish in that particular way. Clearly, she was plugged into communities where those fine distinctions were very important. But it seemed to me arbitrary from the outside perspective which of those words you choose. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not I'm not saying that she wasn't right. I I'm just at this point reporting. I felt ashamed, and I corrected it. But at the same time, I was angry at her for making me ashamed in public about what seemed to me relatively trivial. I mean, the whole discussion got transferred onto a discussion of these particular words and away from the point that I was trying to make, Mm -hmm. which was actually sympathetic to a transgender person, transgender person, or a transgender, however however I'm supposed to say it. At any rate, that critique, that, uh, that analysis that we heard a lot of in late 2016, early 2017, that, you know, hasn't been falsified in the meantime. I'm not saying it's the ultimate explanation of Trump, but it's an important part of the story that a large part of the country felt that they were being talked down to by elites who made these fine distinctions that were inscrutable to anybody outside those elite communities, and that the purpose wasn't to make the society better by talking down that way. The purpose was uh, to make them feel ashamed in order to feel powerful because I... I'm in part of the elite group and you're not. And yeah. it was a rebellion against that elite group. And it's, it's the, one of the only times I've, I felt, I, I, even though, like I say, she might've been right in the end. I was glad that she gave me that experience, whether or not she was, because I thought, okay, this is what it feels like to have an elite talk down to you and just be kind of clueless and feel ashamed and then start to get angry. Yeah. Oh, well I, I have, uh, you know, I, a lot of family members who voted for Trump and were, you know, enthusiastic Trump supporters and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, I saw that vicariously through them, you know, like uh, for instance, my, uh, I remember, I mean, just to give one example my, my uncle lives in Ohio and like, he's a, an unbelievably sweet, beautiful man. He's a really nice guy and he's, uh, he's um, he's not a racist like at all. Like I mean, it, it's absurd to describe him as a racist. Um, he's also like not some sort of you know sexist or a homophobe. His uh, one of his sons, my cousin, is uh, is openly is openly gay. In fact, is married to a dreamer. <laughs> to uh, oh, wow. like uh, and and he's a hardcore Trump supporter and. So listening to people say all these things about my uncle, these really mean, he's a, also like a very, uh, you know, a hardcore fundamentalist, um, born again Christian and stuff like that. And I could see, I remember a couple of times watching people um, when he was up here, like from the States, up here in Montreal. And like, we'd be, we'd have like, you know, CBC on and stuff like that. And they'd be talking about saying all these like horrible things about like Trump supporters. And, and Mm -hmm. just looking at him getting so angry, like, and the thing is, is he, 
he's not uh he has he i think he has like a high school diploma he never did like college or anything like that and i think he he had i mean he's a, an incredibly smart person but he just he never did a lot of schooling or anything like that and he's done a lot of manual labor and every time they would attack trump i could see him feeling personally attacked and yeah. i saw that again and again with like friends and family members who were trump that they felt that they were making fun of that people were making fun of them for just being right. not polished and not as like uh you know cuz like he would joke around I mean, he loves his son so much and he loves his son, his son-in-law and he loves them even though he uh, he's like yeah they're probably going to hell but i love those little faggots like like <laughs> he's joking i mean he's just fucking yeah. around it's like the way working class guys talk right like he's by their fruits you shall know them right and his fruits are yeah. all good it's all love and it's all acceptance and it's awesome but uh he felt personally attacked when people would say nasty stuff about and, and he's just i'm just giving one example i give many examples so yeah I, I totally hear you that like he trump tapped into uh and, and the thing is the template was there if you look at w right like i remember when people would attack him for his his grammatical gaffes and his like his yes i mean george w bush is an incredibly intelligent man um and and there's a lot of people who have posited i happen to not buy it but i think it's not a stupid theory it's actually a completely plausible theory that he actually put on a lot of that that stuff like he would Mm -hmm. pretend to goof up and things like that and pretend to have a southern accent and pretend right um right i've heard um i've heard recordings of conversations with him with that he didn't realize we're being recorded and mm. um he does have a texas accent and he does uh, have like like a little bit of a, a clumsiness sometimes with, when he's speaking so i don't think any of that was an act but mm. it doesn't matter if it was an act or not the the truth is in the same way that alcibiades apparently would like goof up stuff in his speeches and that would make it sound more authentic uh Every time people attacked him for his grammatical gaffes, you could just see, you know, mm. millions of Americans being like personally insulted. Like that's the way they feel when they're talking to elites who make fun of them. You know what I mean? Right. I, well, I'm glad you brought up Alcibiades because I was about to interject and say, talking about George W. Bush, we might as well be talking about antiquity. Doesn't it feel like that long Absolutely. ago? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and that's. Sort of uh, Fukuyama's point that we're, we're, we've entered this new era of identity politics. And again, he, he's not naive. He doesn't think that, that, that this wasn't happening before, but that it's, it's happening in a particularly intense form in this decade. Mm. And just on the, just on the Trump point, uh, you know, this is implied in what you were saying, but there was that mystery during the campaign when he was against Clinton – and you know this was already happening when he was going for the Republican nomination, but it was national attention when it was he was up against Clinton, where he would do these embarrassing things. He would say these shameful things. He would say these sorts of things that would disqualify any previous candidate, and his numbers would either be steady or go up. Yeah. And the, the complete mystery until you realize, wow, 
they like him because he's getting <laughs> shamed and humiliated. Yeah, well, that's how they feel all the time. That's I right. I mean, that's when they, I mean, if you have all these people who are in their 40s and 50s and they're still kind of living paycheck to paycheck, they have no savings, they feel embarrassed almost all the time when they're mm-hmm. hanging around with like, you know, because the, that's what's happened, right? With the middle class, like a bunch of them have fallen into poverty, a bunch have fallen into sort of, sort of you know, working class status. And, right, or they're yeah, just clinging to middle class with their fingernails. Yeah, fingernails, and like paycheck to paycheck. And then you have like some that have kind of gone off into the stratosphere and are doing extremely well. Well, if you're not part of that group, um, you're feeling very insecure about your status and your recognition. And so it's always yeah. about... And so anytime you see somebody being kind of embarrassed and feeling sort of vulnerable people relate to that i mean they completely they they just you know they they eat it up it's like you remember before uh kevin spacey got me too'd uh on the show um uh, house of cards do you, you remember that one time when he's there's those people who uh, I think their their son saw one of the campaign ads and he got into an accident or something like that and he, he died and they're suing him and so he it's it's down in South Carolina if I remember correctly. I vaguely remember the scene. Yeah, yes. and he, he he's going to meet with these people to try and get them to drop their their lawsuit against his campaign, yes. which will uh, you know, bankrupt the campaign and stuff like that. Yes. And he he keeps you know talking to the to the audience to us right, and he, he makes says, some mayonnaise sandwiches as I recall. Yeah, and, and, he, and he says you know among these people their humility is their pride. So if I can yeah. humble myself before them, they will yes. be. And so he goes there and he's all by himself and he doesn't have any. And he says you know I I I'm so sorry. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to just like, you know, resign? Do you want me to like, and he just lays yeah. it all out and he, and he makes himself right. totally vulnerable and humble. And they're like, well, no, we just, you know, like, and it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Cause he tells you all the way through like what he's doing. Right. 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 Trump, right. I, I don't know if he understands this by design or if he's just like, you know, the right person for the right time. But he gets that so well. So he makes these like stupid misspellings and mistakes and everything. And like, and, and people think that by correcting him on that, they're somehow like, they're going to be successful. Refuting the phenomenon. Yeah. No, they're really, really not. Like, because (laughs) the way, that's the way all of his audience feels when they're talking to their, you know, right. 32-year-old daughter who's an accountant who's always right. rolling her eyes whenever daddy talks. You know, like, right. that's how they yeah. feel all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're getting, we're really getting to the heart of the Fukuyama book. It's, yes. And it's a straightforward point. And I'm glad you brought up the Bush administration. I mentioned this in the review, but there was a book which I'm sure you read and I haven't because you read everything and I read next to nothing. But there was a book in the Bush administration, um, 2004, I think, called uh, What's Wrong with Kansas? Oh, my God, and yes. The, the question— Thomas Frank, it, yeah. I was okay, just, there you go. Yeah. You've read it, haven't you? Yeah. I knew you had. Yeah. So, it was a I'll, fucking I'll terrible book. book. It was a terrible—it <laughs> was an embarrassing—you're totally right. I mean, it, it's a terrible—oh, God. Yeah. 
for the listeners who haven't uh, even got the passing acquaintance, let me give the summary, and then you can correct me if I'm wrong. Again, I haven't read it, but but, it, but it's the phenomenon that matters, I think, more than the book. The question is, what's wrong with Kansas? Why, when their economic interests would lead them to vote for the Democrats, why do they vote for the Republicans? And so what's wrong with Kansas? Question mark. An entire book to explain that. And you and I, in this discussion in 10 minutes, have given the heart of the explanation, which is that they feel contemned by the Democrats or by what they associate to be with elites. Now, of course, there are values explanations as well. They're evangelical Christians, and the Republican Party uh, has co-opted that interest. But this is the heart of Fukuyama's book, that economic explanations just don't cut it. It's a pretty straightforward point. You've got to add in people's feelings of anger and shame as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, for for people like that, um, I mean, it's different if you're in a a big city, you know, on the coasts or or even maybe in Chicago, I suppose. Uh, but for most people in in relatively rural parts of the United States, the government has not ever really done that much for them that they're mm-hmm. aware of. And so mm-hmm. mostly what they have is they have their they have their pride, they have their traditions, they have their church. They have their mosque, they have their synagogue, they have their community, um, they have their guns, they have their, like... So they feel, you know, like, even though times are tough money-wise, they feel like they have a sense of solidarity and community, and they feel like they have some control over their lives, and they really like, you know, people that talk to them, you know, in that place, right? Like with respect, like, like I value those things you value. Right. Whereas if somebody says, comes to them and says, you're a big victim and all these people are just like screwing you over the top, even if it's true, uh, that's not what they want to (laughs) hear. You know, they, they don't necessarily believe that you have, uh, the solution and they don't like the way you're framing their lives like at all. Right. Cause they, they don't feel like, Victims, even if they are in many ways. You're right. 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 It reminds me of what Obama said uh, in San Francisco during the primary battle he had against uh, Hillary Clinton in, I guess that was 2008. And I think it was the Pennsylvania primary. There was a seven week uh, delay and well, at least seven weeks between the previous primary and then that one. So they had seven weeks to, to for gaffes. And you remember when Obama was out in San Francisco at a fundraiser and he said, you know, someone said, you know, why aren't you winning in, in Pennsylvania? Uh, why aren't you heading the polls? And he oh, said, God, well, in Pennsylvania, yeah. they cling to their to, to God and their guns. Yeah, 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 yeah. Guns and religion or something like that. Guns or, and religion. Yeah, guns yeah. and religion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was a big gap. And he ended up, um, he ended up winning the he ended up winning the primary nonetheless, but he had to fight back from that comment. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was especially weird about that comment is that uh, he is somebody who personally, not in a kind of a made-up way, completely understands the appeal of both. (laughs) Mm. I mean, I remember, like, I think it was, um, we just recently listened to a wonderful, uh, it's Chicago Public, Public Radio had a series called The Making of Obama, and it's just Excellent. I mean, it's just absolutely excellent. But it goes all the way through, you know, back to talking to lots of his friends in college, talks to you know all these different people. But um, there's an interview with him and Michelle, and this is like, oh, I guess about 
uh, a few weeks before that weird comment uh, where they're asking them about like religion. And of course they're both extremely sympathetic to that. Um, But they also asked them about guns and they were both super, super sympathetic to to guns as well. Like they, they said, well, you know, we were like when, uh, when Barack first got like, you know, got his job in the state legislature and we were going to potentially looking at living in a, a rural area. We, we looked and we're like, what the, you know, like you're out here in the middle of nowhere. If you call nine one one, even in like perfect circumstances, they're not going to be there for half an hour. If it's winter or something like that, it could be much more. So, yeah, I definitely would not feel safe uh, if I'm home alone with, like, the kids, like, in yeah. this area. I can't rely on... It's not like being in the city where you call 911 and they're there in two minutes, right? Yeah. But it's, yeah. So, yeah. they were very sympathetic to a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, that, that comment was very odd. You know what's weird about Thomas Frank is that his first book that was his dissertation is brilliant. It's, uh, it's called The Conquest of Cool, and it's it's just it's it's so so good. He he basically talks about how uh, consumer consumer culture, consumer capitalism in the nineteen sixties uh, found a way to use the the idea of cool as a way to yes. like sell products. And so it was it was depoliticized, and how like all the way to this day we we still are sort of living with this. But and then he comes out with that book, which was so completely it was, it was terrible i mean it's good that you mentioned it because it, it and by the way if you read the book there's there's nothing more subtle than what you just said in this <laughs> no sometimes it, you read a review and you get that sense that's why i didn't read it <laughs> well that's i mean so many books today are like that right i mean you you get a, a hit article in the atlantic or the new republic or foreign policy and you get a book deal and they say, well, we'd love you to turn this into a book. And then they turn it into a book. And then when you read the book, really, it's just a bloated article. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no really new kind of like, like, I mean, there's so many examples of this. The one that springs to mind immediately is uh, the clash of civilizations. Right. I mean, like that, that was a fantastic article. The, hmm. He got a deal. Uh, the book, there's nothing new in hmm. the book that you didn't See, I read the book, the but article. not the article. I didn't read the article. I just read the book, but I thought it was an excellent book, full of detail. So I'm, I'm amazed that that would be captured in an article. It's He captures it perfectly in the article. And basically, it's a situation where y- you make a good point logically, and then you give, mm-hmm. you know, let's say, like, yeah. two examples to illustrate your point. Yeah. Whereas in the book, he'll give... 10 examples. But the thing is, is like, if, if you don't buy his point, you can probably come up with 10 counter examples. So the 10 examples didn't, didn't help convince you, right? Like if you, if the two didn't convince you, uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, I love Aaron Haspel's line about this. He says like, when a, when an author gives you three examples, um, Mm -hmm. he has dozens. When he gives you four, he has four. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like so that is good like, well, he's good i see i see you quoting him on twitter all the time he's really clever yeah no he's a, a very good kind of now what do you think about it? this is sort of the last question that i wanted to ask you about is um in light of everything we've 
very, very recently, I mean, since New Year's Eve, basically, uh, we're getting a much more granular, detailed uh, report of everything that the Russians were doing uh, to mess with the 2016 election. And not only in the United States, they're doing a bunch of stuff in France, they were doing a bunch of stuff in Germany. Here in Canada, we now know that a number of um, sort of separatist pages and sites that were uh, super, super anti-Canada pro-separatists were actually set up by by Russian trolls. And uh, sites that were set up uh, that were like obsessed with Quebec bashing and trying to get people here really sort of upset in a kind of thematic way about their identity. These people mm-hmm. are res- disrespecting you. Are you going to take mm-hmm. that from him? And like a lot mm-hmm. of those sites were were set up by Russians. And then a bunch of sites in Alberta that were all about like, oh, they hate us. They just, they always disrespecting us. They don't realize we're paying all the bills with the tar sands. Like a bunch of those, you know, also set up, right? So I just think what we're learning now, uh, and they, the definitive book, by the way, um, I'm about two thirds of the way through it, um, is the the new book by uh, John Carlin called um, Dawn of the Data Wars which is mm-hmm. just so disturbing. I mean, it's it's he, detailed. He says exactly all the ways in which uh, the Chinese have been fucking with us online, the Russians, uh, the North Koreans, all, all this different. He explains in detail mm-hmm. how it's all been happening. And mm-hmm. he, this all fits into the kind of the framework that Fukuyama is talking about in his book. And the common denominator in all of this is that they were trying to inflame identity politics. Mm -hmm. And, Mm. and the crazy thing is, is it was everything. I mean, like they set up sites that were like Texas pride, you know, no, it was, it was called, it was called heart (laughs) of Texas. They set up uh, anything. They set up a a really well-known, which I have friends who shared stuff from their page. They set up a big LGBTQ page, right? Like, uh, like they set up a a trans page. They set up, uh, they were really, really heavy in the black lives matter movement. Like Mm -hmm. I, my childhood friend, uh, you know, Latif shared numerous i I went back facebook has like their searchable timeline now and so every time new pages are identified as being uh kind of russian setup i go and do a search to see who i know who uh shared stuff from from those pages and i contact them and say well you know fyi you should know uh Mm -hmm. that you you shared a bunch of stuff from from the stuff and and actually my my uncle in Ohio is one of the people who shared a bunch of stuff from a pro Trump. Oh jeez. Yeah. But yeah. so but the common denominator is that they are always in Canada, in the United States, in France, in Germany, they are always trying to inflame thumos. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. trying to flame uh individual identity uh, they had they had a pussy hat uh like kind of a a big kind of like <laughs> anti patriarchy yeah, right, like blah 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 right, like, right. there anything that divides us they yes. are um they are doing that now of course uh, as as one of um uh, one of his friends in the CIA put it uh he says like we were 
dry tinder for the Russians. So there, there already was a lot of divisions and a lot of anger, but that's what they pushed on. So in, in light of that new information, I mean, wh- what do you make of that? Do you think that that gives us a more kind of a moral imperative to like really push back on this stuff hard? I mean... Okay, well, I've got two things to say about that. Uh, the first, I want to take a page from Plato's uh, medical theory. And, of course, Plato's not a current uh, physician, but there's some truth in this medical theory. His theory is that you get sick not because of pathogens. And, of course, you have to remember they didn't have microscopes. They didn't know about uh, bacteria and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is mostly intuitive and from observation. Yeah, they didn't have a germ but, theory, you know, yeah. Yeah, but they made the observation that when the plague came to Athens, some people got sick and some didn't. Yeah. And so the theory, you know, which turns out to be false, but I think this observation is interesting in, in this context. The theory was the cause is not, in fact, from the outside. The cause is from the inside. And if there's weakness in the organism, it will fall prey to the illness. And if the organism is strong, then it won't. And I'd, I'd say the same thing about the body politic in this case, that, okay, uh, the Russians apparently were ingenious for uh, knowing of the role of Thumas or having read their Hegel through Marx or whatever, knowing that that was exactly the way to destabilize uh, an electoral system through inflaming uh, resentment over dignity and so on. That's ingenious. But the fault lies with us for having been so susceptible. And to go back to martial arts, this would be the second point related, that you know when you're sparring, one thing you look you – know, I mean, if you're sparring with somebody who's roughly the same size and roughly the same level of training, you, you need some advantage. And at that point, it becomes psychological. And what you need to do is destabilize the opponent some way. Get in one way that works well is get him angry. You know, hit him in a place that you'll, you'll lose a point, but it'll make him angry that he got hit in that place. Then he'll, his judgment will be corrupted. Or, you know, it, it, you can see how it goes. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that was the problem with us is that we got destabilized in this way. And that, I think that gets back to the point about education. How is it that we fostered a country? And I think it's, you know, starts with the educational system, how we train ourselves, how we train our children. How is it that we produced uh, several generations that can be inflamed in those ways? Well, because we're not thinking about the common good. You know, we, we have our separate identities, but we don't have that common horizon against which we can meet and have a discussion to mediate the differences between our separate identities. And Fukuyama is aware of this. He says identity politics is more dangerous than conflicts over economics because it's a, he thinks that those are insoluble difficulties. If we have economic differences about how much role the government should take, uh, what the tax rate should be. We can have a rational discussion about policy, namely, should it be you know 37% or 39% or should we go back to 70% the way Cortez wants, et cetera. But if it's about identity, I've got, Fukuyama says, I've got my identity, you've got yours. There's no negotiation. It's, are you going to recognize me or not? Am I going to recognize you or not? But he misses that if we've got a common horizon of at least a, a, an idea that there is such a thing as the real good, we might be willing to relax our identities because in the end we identify with something beyond ourselves rather than our group. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I remember Annalise and I, when we, uh, when we were in grad school living in Baltimore, we were involved for a while with this group, uh, the student labor action committee. And we were basically pushing for, I mean, this happened at Yale, it happened at Harvard, it happened at a number of different schools. But we were pushing to try and get 
uh, Johns Hopkins to pay a living wage to their uh, menial task workers, like janitors and things like yeah. that. And to, just because we had, it was sort of embarrassing, right? It's like this super uh, elite university in the middle of Baltimore. And yeah. we had people that were working as janitors for, you know, working like 40 hours a week at Hopkins and they had no uh, medical care. Hopkins is like one of the top hospitals in the world. And yet their right. employees didn't have right. healthcare, full-time employees. And a lot of the employees were going to food banks to make ends meet. Right. And so we were trying Can I just interrupt you yeah, for a second. Yeah. I, I want to, I want to hear the rest of the story, but I think you'll like this anecdote. Yeah. So I studied with, uh, Alistair McIntyre. Oh, wow. And, oh my God. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I was very fortunate. Uh, he, in my he's an oh, amazing person. Yeah. And uh, I took a course on uh, Aristotle's ethics and politics with him. And there's a, a point in the politics where Aristotle describes uh, slaves as part, how does he put it, part of the city, but not of it. I forget the exact phrase, at least how it's translated. And the, the basic point is that they're not, they're not part of the city, actually. So I should put it, they're not part of the city, but they're necessary conditions for the city. They're instruments, and, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. And, and we were as a group struggling over what that meant. And, and, and McIntyre said, the role that the janitors play at this university is this role. Namely, you don't think of them as part of this university. It's as if they don't exist. They're just here to do the stuff that needs to be done so that this discussion can happen. Oh my God. That's ballsy. He said that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 Well, we were like, anyway, so we were part of this group. And so we, we um, f- met with people in the community and we got like this huge community uh, support and we ended up like pushing the administration and they weren't doing anything about it. And so we finally occupied the president's building for two weeks and like CBS came and all these like news organizations. Like we chained ourselves to like chairs in the president's building and they threatened to deport everybody that was there on student visas, including me and like all this. Anyway, oh, they, wow. but, yeah, it was pretty intense. But I, there were a couple of moments where I saw the cleavages that Fukuyama's talking about. Well, at one time, there was a big rally in support of the living wage movement at this Baptist church not far from, uh, not far from uh, the downtown campus. And we're all there, and we're singing hymns, and people are like, you know, all this stuff. And there's a bunch of people, these like grad students, members of the Student Labor Action Committee, who are just like going, oh, this is so stupid, this stupid like religion, opiate of the masses, mm, and they're like rolling yeah. their eyes. And you could see the more seasoned activists just wanting to kill them. They were like, would you <laughs> just quit it, yeah. right? And yeah. then there was another point where we had been, at this point, a number of days um, occupying the president's building, and all these local businesses, we had support of the local news support. Like we had huge amount of like absolute community support and all these local restaurants started donating food to us and like mm-hmm. bringing like food. And we had like some people from like, you know, what we would now call like sort of social justice warrior type, like from like, yeah. you know, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, stuff like that going, is that vegan? And like, <laughs> like oh, <God. laughs> and we're just looking at them like, would you shut up? This is like somebody, a, a small yeah. business owner from the community that has taken time out of her day to come yeah. and bring us about $300 worth of food that she and her employees made. 
say yeah. thank you, smile, yes. be thankful. Yes. Like, why are you like deciding now is the time to like draw right. this distinction? Like, just don't eat it if you don't want to, you know. But like, <laughs> but yeah. there was a number of times where we just saw these like weird. Um, because, you know, back in the day when you were pushing for things, you would always have, uh, Saul Alinsky types around like old lefties, you know, kind of people who are really good at like keeping their eye on the ball. Right. Who would say, mm. uh, look, we need to, we, we want to push for this change. And so we need to, uh, there, there's two ways to basically make a big change. You either do the Leninist route where we like, kill a lot of people and we seize power and like force the change in this kind of like, you know, like a radical vanguard, right? Or we build coalitions and make it happen. And building coalitions means transcending smaller identities for larger yeah. goals. And we increasingly yeah. just don't know how to do that anymore. Right. And the right yeah. knows how to do that. Right. Like, mm. I mean, they know how to like kind of, Perhaps maybe less so now. Perhaps they're actually losing that ability lately. Maybe, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, they were very at, successful in 2010 with the Tea Party. Yes, yeah, right. So you could get people who are have a very different kind of lifestyles and different, but they could get together behind like certain kind of a program. Like, well, we want this same goal, so let's you know do this, right? Uh, yeah, but it it ultimately is a kind of um, corrosive thing. Now, there's a dark side to this, which you sort of allude to in your review. I don't know if this made it into the the final cut that's going into Quillette, but the dark side of the identity politics thing, which uh, I think you mentioned, Fukuyama does not mention it in a very long book, but is that actually, if you are a member of the majority, um, if you are a member of the... <coughs> the sort of ethnic or religious majority, then identity politics might actually, you know, for purely um, practical reasons, might make sense. Mm. Right? Which is like the sort of white identity politics. And a lot of people don't seem to realize that that's what they're setting up, right? Well, yeah, Fukuyama, <laughs> I think one of the assets of the book is that he doesn't distinguish... Well, he distinguishes, but he doesn't, um, let's say, discriminate. When he's using the word identity politics, he talks as much about uh, identity politics on the right as he does on the left. And he tells a long story about the evolution of right-wing identity politics coming out of the 19th century, especially. And this touches on something that we we were talking about about half an hour ago, uh, the difference between the, the rural and the urban, mm -hmm. which... It was a huge revolution in the 19th century that you know we I think we need to think more about. That I think Fukuyama says in the end of history that in the 19th century four fifths of Americans were self-employed, mm -hmm. and in the 20th by the end of the 20th century when he's writing that book in 1992 only one in ten were. That's a huge change in mentality. If you've got a, a citizenry of self-employed farmers and then most of them end up moving to the cities where they're working for the man, yeah. you're gonna have very different sort of very different sort of citizens. Well, I mean, you look at also uh, something like, I mean, there's there's analogs in a lot of different Western countries, but the most striking one, I think, is in the United States with the, the Republican Party initially was sort of kind of a merger between 
the Free Soil Party and the remnants of the Northern Whig Party, right? But the yes. Free Soil Party is fascinating. I mean, like their their mm. whole slogan, right? Free soil, free labor, free men. And they were all about trying to convince the American electorate that a man who collects a wage is a real man. And a man who collects a real wage can be entrusted with the vote because that was not obvious to them, right? Because right, they didn't right. they didn't have they didn't have private right. uh, you know secret ballot. You voted publicly. Everybody knew how you voted, yeah. and their their idea was that this is just not going to be safe. That yeah. you are. I mean, this is why they didn't want Catholics to have the vote. They didn't want it. They thought your boss is basically going to be able to tell you who to vote right. for, right? They're right, going to say right. like, uh, "I want you to vote for this person, and if you don't vote for, vote for this person, you're fired." Right. And yes. they thought Catholics. Well, the Pope is going to tell them who to vote for, and they're going to right have to vote for that person. And this was also actually yeah. a concern about Mormons, right? That their yeah. elders are going to yeah. tell them, and right. it was because their idea was like this: democracy can only work if. You have educated people who read up on the issues and then make an intelligent decision, right? On and their own. On their own, right? Without somebody else. And it's, you know, people scoff at it, but it's a legitimate concern. I mean, like, Nassim Nicholas yeah. Taleb told me that when he was working, when he was in his 20s, he worked for a number of different uh, sort of banks and trading outfits in Wall Street. And they would, on a regular basis, come out and talk to the entire team. Sometimes they'd even send like emails. They'd have like a written, yeah. you know, where they would yeah. say, there's this new proposed change in the law and it's yes. going to be terrible for us. I want all of you to like write your uh, congressperson uh, a letter, right. a private letter saying why you're opposed to this. And, you know, we <laughs> should all vote for this person because this person is going to be good for the street. And he, he was just like, this is insane. Like this is corruption, Right. And even when it doesn't happen explicitly like that, it's happening all the time implicitly. And the James Damore case was polarizing, I think, for many people for that reason. That here's this guy who had political differences with and, – and, and the thing is, he didn't even have political differences. He just asked questions that you weren't supposed to ask uh, within Google, and, and they fired him. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So it's not about voting necessarily, but it's sending a message about – what uh, the values are of uh, that institution and which questions can't be asked because of those values. Yeah, and I mean, social media is, is making all of this, all these 19th century questions are right back front and center now because that's right. If, if your employer can tell you what you can and cannot say on Sunday afternoon, uh, yeah. when you're on the clock for, you know, whatever, Monday to Friday, like 9 to 5, yes. if they can say what you can and cannot say... Uh, that's getting into some pretty uh, weird territory. I mean, like, I, I've been compiling a list of all the creepy examples I've heard of this over the last few years. I mean, one of them was um, a friend of mine came a border guard a few years ago. But, like, uh, there was a border guard who basically on, on his own time uh, was posting articles on Facebook and, and Twitter about how, you know, the, the war on drugs was having a huge toll and it was not a very good thing and stuff like that. And he never once said, 
made an allusion to what he did for a living. He never once said, you know, I will yeah. not enforce these laws. He was just as a private, thoughtful voting citizen saying, I, I don't think these laws are, are, are a very good idea, right? Um, yeah. And he was fired, right? Yeah. There's a, yeah. a nurse in Alberta who, like, basically, while she was on maternity leave, like three months into maternity leave, she... Um, made a Facebook post about how she was really saddened by the way in which um, the way the way that old people were being treated in old folks' homes and the, the quality of care, and she wished that they could do better for them, and she felt like they were not con- treating them with a lot of respect and dignity and stuff like that. She was fired. Right? Yeah, for saying yeah. that. There's, you know? there's a funny instance here in in Pittsburgh where I live. Um, I followed for a while the baseball team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and like many major league baseball teams, they have this silly race uh, in the seventh inning. And in in Pittsburgh, it was uh, people dressed up as pierogies, and they race around, you know, the, the 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 circumference of the field, and you know, it's entirely staged, and it goes on all season. Are you rooting for this pierogi or that pierogi? And one of the pierogies, you know, and he only gets paid twenty five dollars a game to to run this. Uh, this race, but he, he had a Facebook post saying the pirates stunk, you know, and at that, that season they lost a hundred games. So there was just no dispute that he was right about that, but yeah, they fired him. <laughs> they fired him because he criticized the team. Wow. That's, I mean, <laughs> I mean, what do you, what do you think about this? Like, should, should we just sort of, I, I don't know. I mean, is this a, a hill to die on? Like that? Yeah. Well, I wrote, I wrote an article, uh, that, ended up in a much shorter version in Quillette uh, uh, about a month ago or two or three weeks ago. The title they gave to it was uh, Between Discipline and Chaos. Mm -hmm. The original title was Disciplining the Individual. And it talked a lot about these 19th century thinkers who saw this happening, this uh, homogenization of culture, uh, Tocqueville, Mill, and Mm -hmm. Nietzsche. Um, and you know, we think of ourselves as living in a, an era of unprecedented freedom, and so it's paradoxical to say no. In fact, we're living in, a, in an era of, of the most homogeneity of thought uh, imaginable. Well, that critique started in the 19th century, and so I, I, in the meantime, I've been thinking, like, why? Why did that happen? And that that statistic I gave you that I just uh, learned from returning to Fukuyama's early book about self-employment to going to industrial labor where you're working for the man that would have a lot to do with it, I should think. But also the production of newspapers, so that you've got these tools to homogenize opinion, where everybody's reading the same newspaper, or these three newspapers exist, so there are really only three opinions you can have about this particular thing. But the hero of that uh, piece. That uh, as I originally wrote it, disciplining the individual was Foucault, mm-hmm. and one reason I wanted I wanted to get that on Quillette, and you know there was a little bit of Foucault that ended up on uh, in the Quillette version was you know Foucault is usually considered the high priest of the social justice movement, and so Quillette readers you know I would assume generally are not sympathetic to him, but Foucault gives to my mind an accurate diagnosis of what happens in the Enlightenment, the design of so-called rational, efficient institutions that regiment people's lives and homogenize them so that, you know, greater efficiency and power can be achieved. And I think that that analysis is right, but that, as you say, social media turn it up to 11 because whereas before, you know, we would be in our schools, we'd be in our hospitals, we'd be in our barracks, we'd be in our prisons or wherever, these institutions that Foucault describes in his various books that would homogenize us. Um, now we're in those institutions all the time. And of course, television was the beginning of this newspapers too, but now on social media, if you check, gosh, I'm ashamed to say how 
my phone's now telling me how much time I spend on my phone every day, and I don't want to say it in any permanent way. But I, I challenge everybody else who's listening to this. You're probably extremely online if you're listening to this podcast in the first place. You know, Find out how many hours a day you're spending online. It's shocking. And when you think that you're spending it with people who most often agree with you or a certain circle of people who are sharing the same stories – um, there's pressure, of course, to agree to certain things and disagree with things, or as you were saying earlier, to get angry about certain things or to humiliate certain people for saying certain things. There's this tremendous social pressure that I think we're experiencing all the time, and sometimes we're aware of it, but it's most dangerous when we're not. Yeah. Well, I mean, until we can recreate public spaces where we get together on a regular basis at you know, a, I don't know, at like a, a gym or a church or a pub where we get together with people, you know, especially people that are like our peers and we hang out and we talk informally until we can recreate spaces like that. Um, I think used well, uh, social media is pretty much the only game in town. I mean, yeah, it's the only I'm, I'm a, way. I'm a big fan of it. Like, there's there's a new book. It's coming out in three days. I'm I pre-ordered it a while ago. I I cannot wait to read it. Um, it's called Team Human. It's uh, it's by the guy who wrote Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. I'm I'm blanking on his name at the moment. He was actually Sam Harris's last guest. His most recent episode of the mm-hmm. Waking Up podcast. But uh, he in that in that book he apparently. Um, talks about how um, Eisenhower met with all these social psychologists and with Levitt, uh, Levitt and all. When they were designing Levitt Town, they were specifically setting up suburban communities in such a way that there would not be meeting places for adult men. Yeah, they right. were trying to make sure that adult men didn't have places uh, like where they could hang out because they thought those mm-hmm. would be uh, beds of, of, of radicalization and vice and things like that. And so we've, yeah. we've lost so much of our, our common culture. And so, uh, you know, when, when Marx talked about the idiocy of rural life, what he, what he really meant was the kind of the, the absence of friendship, right? Where you're only surrounded by your immediate family and you don't see other people very often at all. And like a lot of us are living those kinds of, you know, very lonely lives. Right. So I think to some extent, uh, social media when used possibly is the only alternative to, to nothing. Right. Yes. Right. um, Right. So, I mean, I, I, I get it. I, I totally understand all the problems with it. Uh, but, you know, it's in for a lot of people. It's the only game in town. I mean, like uh, that's I, I yes yeah. So as I was, yeah yeah, well, I was just going to say. Um, so I'm a big fan of it, and you know, yeah, I'm ashamed perhaps of how much I spend on it, but I'm I, I'm glad I'm on it. I'm glad it exists. And for example, you and I wouldn't have met yeah, if it yeah, hadn't yeah. been for it. We wouldn't we wouldn't be reading a lot of the things that we're reading if we weren't hearing yeah. about them from uh, people, common acquaintances, and, and so on. Yeah, but. You know, the, one of the best critiques of social media I've read is in the, one of the most unlikely places. It's in um, Henry Kissinger's World Order, which is, uh, in my estimation, an excellent book. And the, the final chapter, the penultimate chapter, is about social media. And wow. he thinks that it's a huge problem for leadership because what the leader has to do is stand against the 
crowd. Yeah. And, and the social media is creating this conformity. And I think that's right. And I just want to tie it back into something that we were talking about earlier, which is the importance of courage. Yeah. And if we don't have uh, institutions sort of designed in as much as this is possible to create courageous people, then, or at least facilitate the growth of courageous people, then it, it's going to become a serious problem. And so I talked in the Disciplining the Individual, the, the Quillette piece that was between Discipline and Chaos, about the Black Mirror episode, Nosedive, oh, which is a dystopian so future where social media is not just in our hands, but it's in our eyes as well. We can't help but <laughs> see it all the time. And it's a, it's a story of a woman who gets finally some courage, only by, to tie it into something we were saying earlier as well, total abject failure. Only in that moment of total abject failure yeah. can she find herself. Well, I mean, one of the things that, you know, obviously I'm not going to disclose any names here, but one of the things I thought was fascinating about um, the Quillette get-together in Toronto is that there's all these sort of refugees, right, like that I, I met there, who people who have, who were kind of, like in that episode, Nosedive, for one reason or another, they were shamed or they were kicked out of the cool kid, kid club, right? And they they end up... Uh, you know, kind of marooned on this strange desert island, right? And they, there's this recognition where they start talking to each other and saying, like, "Oh, you, you, you too!" Like, "Oh, wow, yeah, right." So, and it, it's fascinating because at a certain point, if you keep excluding more and more people, then gradually yes. the camp of the excluded becomes a tribe to be reckoned with, right? So. Uh, yes. But but right. at that point, I mean, I thought the most fascinating talk um, at the the Quillet Social was from uh, Michael Shermer, the founder of Skeptic Magazine and author of many books, like you know why people believe weird things. And I don't think you know I was tr- I was talking to Claire about this afterwards. I don't think everybody grasped what a Jeremiah like. I mean, he says it with a smile and he's, he's sweet and nice, but. He was delivering a sweet Jeremiah ad, um, that, that talk he gave, because Michael Shermer was, uh, in the 70s, he was a charismatic Christian. He was uh, a hardcore objectivist for a while. He was like one of those big, like, you know, Ayn Rand kind of fans. He's been involved in a number of kind of radical movements, right? Like, and so he knows what he's talking about. And he's, he's studied this for the last couple decades, right? So when he got up there and he said, you know, the challenge for you guys now is just make sure that you don't kind of recreate the pieties that you're fleeing from. Like, don't become yeah. just another kind of yeah. interest group, right? So, I mean, right. you and I have talked about this. I mean, I, I don't know how much you're willing to you know, talk about publicly, but, like, what do you think the challenge for Colette in 2019 is, right? If we think about it in, yeah. in Fukuyama well, terms and Platonic terms, right, Nietzschean terms, what is the challenge for Colette yeah. in 2019? Well, there's the challenge that you mentioned, um, but I... I think uh, a deeper challenge is that Colette has to make sure that its identity, uh, and and I do mean that in the in the Fukuyama sense, that it, and and Platonic as well, that that its identity doesn't remain or at least become negative in the sense that 
we're we're all gathered together at this social in Toronto, for example, because we've been kicked out of other communities, and so we're the we're we're, we're the collection of, of rejects. Yeah, and it has to stand for something. Yeah, and and that's why I say it's it's related to Fukuyama and Plato because my critique of Fukuyama's book is that because he doesn't see what reason does for Plato, which is it seeks the real good as something positive. Rather, and that what that allows is an escape from the zero-sum competition of identity politics or economic politics that is the province of the thumos, the middle mm-hmm. part of the soul, or or the lowest part of the soul, which is appetitive. There's only so much money, and when you when someone gets it, someone else loses it. There's only so much esteem. When someone gets more esteem, other people lose esteem. It's it's a hierarchy. So if you're going to get away from zero-sum competitions, the only answer, uh, and you know, the Plato offers, well, the only answer I, I'm convinced is, and Plato offers it, you have to have an allegiance to some real good that's independent of, uh, esteem and money. Yeah. And so that's a danger for, that's a danger for Quillette. And you know, here's where I think the danger gets more dangerous for that crowd because Plato has arguments. And I think that they're correct that, that good, if you start to consider what it would have to be like, that good is going to transcend any number of things to which I think most people who read Quillette are attached. Yeah. So, for example, the good in Plato is eternal. It's immaterial. It is accessible, it, it, perhaps through reason, perhaps through some, some transcendent experience beyond reason itself. Well, that's not the kind of mystical, uh, you know, message that most people I, I gather at any rate who write for Quillette or who read Quillette uh, are interested in. Yeah. Well, I mean, D- David Frum, of course, showed up at the, at the, he didn't speak at the Toronto event, but he was there. And I, I went and talked to him cause I loved his last book, like crazy Trumpocracy. And um, his, his sort of words of wisdom to the group were, um, Yes, you know, I understand a lot of you people are coming from journalism and academia. And so the, the, the kind of crazy that you're dealing with is progressive crazy. And so I understand why that's yeah. a focus. But yeah. you, you need to remember who is president right now. And you need to remember, like, who is, like, yeah. you need to kind of keep your eye on the ball a little bit here. Like, yeah. And, you know, the, saying that, like, we... Uh, for instance, in the Quillette's group on Facebook, the uh, the Quillette Circle, they have a, a, a the moderators ban any discussion of of Trump, and I I understand to some extent why that's a good idea because it's so divisive and it, it often gets in these circular, annoying discussions that are going nowhere. But at the same time, by banning any mention of this incredibly creepy person who's like in the White House at the moment. It's yeah. uh, it, it would <laughs> the lead most some person in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It would lead someone to believe that the biggest problem in the world is from you know whatever blue-haired lesbians in women's studies departments, which is just not true, like at all. Yeah. Like I mean, right? I've there's a a hundred problems that are bigger than whatever that might be. I mean, like so. Uh, that yeah, I mean that that's gonna be an interesting. I think not so much what you were saying, like to to Plato and to. I think more like the prologue to Thus Spoke Zarathustra, you know, where he talks about the the development of the spirit, you know, and like it's you start off yes. as a camel, 
and you take a load on me. And then there's the lion. That's the and that, yes. that's where I see Quillette right now. Like Quillette is the lion, mm. right? Where you right. are like right. you're totally like like uh, Georges Clemenceau. You're like je suis contre. Like you're like I'm against. Like I'm pissed off. Yes. You're the rebel, and that's that's a stage. But right. you can't get stuck there, right? You you can't be defined right. for your entire life by, you know, as I was in my uh, teens and you know maybe a little bit of my early twenties. Like I'm gonna try and be the opposite of my father, right? That's right. that's not a way of defining yourself. That's like yeah, you're still trapped. You're still trapped, right? So if you're just constantly like talking about how much social justice warriors suck and political correctness yeah. is annoying. Like that, yeah. uh, you know, that can get, like I, I saw like a, a bunch of the comments on Twitter after the, not the most recent one with Steven Pinker, but the, uh, the previous, um, Quillette podcast, uh, it was John was interviewing. I can't remember who he was really fascinating guy. He was, uh, he wrote a, uh, an article in Atlantic about sort of um, trans teens and things like that and, and, and drugging them and stuff like that. But anyway, um, and a lot of the comments were, can you please do, can you please talk about something other than trans? <laughs> can you please yeah. talk about yeah. something other? Like we're so tired. Look how many episodes you've done so far and look at how many are about this one yeah. issue, like right. yawn, right? right? right. So, right. yeah, I mean, well, I'm really glad that I'm really glad to hear that David Trump made that point. And of course, as the author of Democracy, that would be the point for him to make. And yeah. too bad he didn't get to speak. But let's remember, John Kay spoke, and I was happy to hear oh, him he say, yeah. "I'm happy to." I was happy to hear him say, "Yes, we 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 publish critiques of social justice warriors, but there is also a force." Uh, uh, abroad called populism, and we need to remember to criticize that as well. And and I was disappointed by the crowd because although when he said we criticize social justice wars, there were cheers. When he said we should criticize populism, it was silent. I don't really? remember many people. Oh wow! Yeah, I, I heard I heard cheers, but maybe I'm just such a okay. narcissist that I only heard myself <laughs> cheering. But maybe but I, I was standing right hear... next to David Frum when he said that, and we were cheering. That, a that lot. would make sense. So yeah, well, it was, and I guess I would have liked to have heard heard really loud cheers at that point because Frum's right. Populism and Trump are a much more serious problem than social justice warriors for the for the very reason Frum said, you know, that these are hothouse flowers in small, you know, but influential circles. But as compared with global phenomena uh that might cause wars. Yeah. Uh that's, you know, we get we don't lose perspective because it's an embarrassment. <laughs> and that's it's a very common criticism uh of Quillette among my academic friends and 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 I don't I don't justify Quillette uh, when they say that because I I do think there's a, a failure of perspective there. Yeah, well, I no, I the same thing. My my wife can't my wife can't stand it for that reason, and she says, yeah, you know, there's there's plenty of good articles in it, but she goes when I when I look at like a list of ten articles that are next, it's uh, it's annoying when it seems like. I mean, this is always, I mean, this is why I don't, I get frustrated with CBC. This is why I get frustrated with you know, lots of news outlets. When you get the feeling that the editors are sort of, we will publish anybody who says one of these seven things. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's when right. it gets really annoying. Yeah. I remember uh, yeah. John Jonathan Kay and I were talking about um, sort of 
differences between CBC Radio and NPR. And he said, yeah, well, I, I tend to agree and disagree politically with an equal number of stories on on both. But I listen to NPR like way, way more than CBC Radio because with NPR, the subject matter is just so wide. Like they talk about mm. so many different weird things. And mm. I don't really know where the stories are going to go. And the stories well, don't the always thing. have a political kind of like moral at the end. They, they're not yeah. always like, whereas like he said, what's frustrating with the CBC ones is even if I agree with them, I know within like 10 seconds exactly where every story is going to go. I know what I the moral is. It's like it's like going to like you know a Sunday morning sermon. You know what the readings are for that Sunday. You know yeah. what the moral of the story is going to be. And yeah. unless it's a really good preacher, that's kind of can be a, tedious, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. And so I think we've got a collection of maybe four or five dangers that you might want to convey uh, to the people you know. That magazine, <laughs> and and I'll I'll say I, I should say I'm I'm grateful to that magazine which is you know published i think six of my pieces by now and it's been seven, very important for my career seven? maybe it is yeah maybe it is seven, but no. it's, it's been it's been great for my career because first of all it's given me an outlet to say things that i, I didn't know any other outlet that would want to hear those things and it's also given me access to a, a broader audience outside of academia that i'm grateful for and i and i hope to publish more more in it as well yeah so those these criticisms we're making i think i think we you know you and i know but anyone's listening might not know us Th- these are friendly criticisms these are friendly criticisms exactly <laughs> we love these people <laughs> these people are our friends yeah yes. uh but i mean that that's the whole thing right quillette should be exactly the kind of community where you can bust each other's balls a bit and it's okay <laughs> yeah right Right. All right. On that on that cheery note, I think we could <laughs> yeah. uh, we could we could split there. So anyway, I uh, it's been wonderful talking to you, and thank you so much uh, for being the first episode of 2019. And uh, I I hope to talk to you again soon and see you soon. I I really enjoyed talking to you this time too, as just as I enjoyed it so much back in the summer. And I hope I get another chance. Thanks, yeah. John. All right. Oh, and Becky says she loves you. By the way. <laughs> Becky in Edmonton. You know, she loves you. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you to Becky for everything that she told me. She's awesome. All right. Take care, man. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye.